G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day. Well, welcome back to the podcast for another year. It is, it's good to be back with you in 2024. And although I'm not joined by dad for the first part of the podcast today, he will be popping in for maybe a couple of snippets later on that I'll describe in just a moment. But first of all, as I say, welcome to everyone for 2024. We are very excited to be back for another year and we've got lots planned over the coming 12 months. But I suppose just to take you in uh, to a little bit of the Sykes in a sanctum. Uh, as some of you may have remembered towards the end of last year, we flagged doing a few episodes on Stoic philosophy and its relation to modern psychology for the first couple of episodes for this year. And just to take you into the uh, spills in a sanctum, usually what happens is Dad and I will do our own research. So we'll, we'll go and research independently and then we'll come together and have a bit of a discussion about how it could all fit into the podcast episode and, you know, where there's anything that's really worth including or leaving out or any of that sort of stuff. And well, it is such a, a good and interesting and in many ways meaty topic, Stoic philosophy, that what happened was we got together for the first week of the year and to record a couple of podcast episodes and we'll realize that, hold on, there is just so much in this topic that we better not rush through it in the way that we maybe thought we would be able to a little bit. And so we recorded one episode last week that we'll get to you uh, in a fortnight's time for the next release of Psych spills but we unfortunately didn't quite have time to uh, really distill things down over two specific episodes and, and get those episodes recorded in in time for for dad heading away uh he's off on a, a little bit of a voyage which he may <laughs> may let you in on over the next couple of weeks but he's not here for for well most of january really so we thought we'd add in a bit of a special episode for today which is going to be a really good intro to stoic philosophy and and how it relates to modern psychology and it borrows a little bit from some previous episodes that we've done too. So uh, we'll be including a few snippets that, that you may have heard on the podcast before, but but not so many recent ones. So oh, I'm sure even if you have heard these episodes, it might be a good little refresher for you before we get into really the nitty gritty of Stoic philosophy over the next couple of episodes. So... The first clip that we'll be showing today comes from episode 52 of the podcast, The ABC of CBT, and it discusses Stoic philosophy's role in modern psychology through one of the founders of CBT, Aaron Beck. And uh, in this first little clip that we'll be showing, it uh, gets across one of the main principles of Stoic philosophy that we'll build on over the next few episodes. But uh, that kind of main principle that we'll be talking about here relates to negative thinking patterns and how we can take distance from our thoughts. Dad, let's get into some of the history because I'm a, I'm a bit of a sucker for some of this sort of stuff. And and it's been very interesting this week to have a look back as we've discussed a little bit on the podcast in previous episodes that some of this stuff goes right back to the ancient Greeks and the ancient Roman, uh, particularly Stoic philosophers as well. So, Dad, do you want to just give us a bit of a sense of how some of those Stoic philosophers fit into the development of CBT? Okay, well, when we look at dealing with hardship or adversity then the philosophy of Stoicism really helped 
in many ways. It helped people develop resilience, know that going through tough times could help develop character, but also not to get too sucked into the idea of thinking the circumstances that we're in at the moment, that's going to overwhelm us. There's nothing much we can do about that. We're in a horrible situation. Oh, I feel helpless. It's looking to develop a kind of resourcefulness where we can stand up even in very challenging situations. So a core example of Stoic philosophy was from Epictetus, who basically emphasized that man is disturbed not by things, but by his view of them. It's our outlook, it's our perspective, it's our take on situations, it's how we view a situation that counts. And so Beck followed up on that very literally by saying, it's not the situations in our lives that cause distress, but rather our interpretations of these situations. So our interpretations, our view, our perspective, in other words, our thinking. It's our thoughts about the situations that we're in. It's our beliefs about them. It's our beliefs about ourselves, about things that happen. It's our beliefs about the future. That's what's going to influence our feelings, our reactions, our emotions, and often our behavior even more than the objective situation itself. So that central notion of considering our view of things, especially when we're in challenging circumstances. And there's a couple of things that I find absolutely fascinating about that. The first is that a lot of this developed, and we'll we'll get into this a little bit more as we go along, but a lot of this developed out of World War II. And part of the reason, it's my understanding anyway, is that obviously before World War II, there was psychological therapies, a lot of them developed by Freud, a lot of them to do with psychoanalysis and that sort of thing. And basically through psychoanalysis, there was a time commitment that people just didn't necessarily have in terms of, you know, it's after World War II, whole range of people who, what we now know to be PTSD, suffering from PTSD, and they didn't necessarily have the resources to be able to treat all of them through psychoanalysis. So I suppose some of it, it seems to me, developed out of the necessity to find a a better way of doing things. Very much so, looking for efficient and practical therapies. Because if we go back, say, 100 years or even over 100 years, certainly hypnosis was quite influential early on. But the field of psychotherapy really took off with Freud, who developed psychoanalysis. But so much of the emphasis from Freud was on unconscious thoughts. So people lie on a couch, the therapist is out of view, so it's not overly influencing what people come up with. People might talk about their dreams, different thoughts going through their mind, their free associations. And the therapist would look to discern the areas of conflict for an individual in terms of what kind of things that they brought up. But if the person described a dream or even talked about an interaction they'd had with someone the previous day, the therapist is looking to infer, ah, but what does the dream symbolise? Or this situation that they're telling me about, what does that symbolise? What kind of notions can I have of where the person might feel stuck? Not taking what they're saying at face value, but looking underneath it all. Now, the problem for people like Beck, who was trained in psychoanalysis, And also Albert Ellis, who we'll talk about in terms of rational emotive therapy, he developed this field of rational emotive therapy the same time that Beck was developing cognitive therapy to have a more efficient form of therapy than psychoanalysis because both Beck and Ellis thought, wait a minute, people are coming up with all these subjective interpretations. They're thinking that when somebody is talking about this neighbour down the street, 
they're really talking about a parent and they're saying this about their parent or if they're talking about a situation where they were near a cliff, they'll be interpreting, well, what does a cliff mean for this person? And they might interpret it in so many different ways. It seems quite subjective. And also it could take ages. For example, Freud would typically say to people, don't make a change in your life like change your job or your house or a key relationship while you're engaged in therapy. Yes, but a course of psychotherapy might take 10 years. <laughs> well, how can you go for 10 years and not make major kind of changes? That might sound like a slight exaggeration, but basically that was the advice for people not to make these changes. Therapy often took years. And so Beck, along with Ellis, and we'll talk about rational emotive therapy maybe in a future episode. But what Beck was thinking is, wait a minute, this is really inefficient. Why don't we look at the kind of thoughts that we can identify that people have? It's, if it's their view of a situation, if it's their interpretation of a situation, let's try to elicit their thoughts about a situation by asking them, by asking them what's going through your mind right now. If the person's experiencing distress, asking what they believe about a situation. If they're struggling in a circumstance, what are your thoughts about that? What's your interpretation of that situation? And as Beck said, there's more to the surface than meets the eye. And as Beck said, well, a number of people could dismiss cognitive therapy early on as being a bit superficial. You're meant to look at these underlying interpretations of what people's unconscious views of situations might be. So yes, CBT so superficial, but Beck was saying, wait a minute, not just superficial, there's more to the surface than meets the eye. Let's identify people's thoughts, bring them up to the surface. If someone thinks, I always screw up, or I'm no good, or that's my fault, or this will turn out badly, then Beck was trying to help people bring up these troublesome kind of thoughts or thoughts that might give them some distress and get them to take distance from those thoughts and look at them. And so that was a key shift with Beck. He, he said that you could be more practical and efficient by identifying thoughts that were closer to the surface than maybe Freud would have asserted. And if we can work with that, if we can work with our beliefs about a situation or how we view a relationship or how we interpret a comment from a friend or how we sum up how we've handled a work situation, if we look at our more direct thoughts about that, bring them up to the surface, that's how it can help us have a more balanced kind of viewpoint. Well, it is so interesting to hear you go through all that and also so interesting, obviously, like Sigmund Freud is such a pinnacle figure in psychology in so many ways, but to hear you describe that almost, I suppose, stereotype model of psychotherapy until I think I was a young kid and actually thought that's what you did, Dad. You sort of said, ah, come in, sit down on the couch and full-on Woody Allen style, you just have someone almost spurt in a stream of consciousness and have to make sense of that. But I suppose what, what interests me about that is that idea of, you know, 2,000 years ago, Epictetus, thing, uh, man is not disturbed by things, but our view of them. It almost seems inherent within Freud's approach that, for example, if you've had something within your childhood, there's no hope of you getting over that. You know, it's a 10-year course of therapy that you may have to go through. You're not in a position to have the capacity to make grand-scale changes in your life with any sense of control over that. It just seems to me so interesting that there seemed to be a, a, a movement away from that kind of thinking for almost 2,000 years. And then through Beck and, and as you say, Alice, it was only then that we seemed to go back towards it, as we say, after World War II, when it was almost like it was necessary for us to do that. 
Yes, well, you mentioned there, say, an emphasis on childhood with Freud. And certainly Freud would say that so much of our life experience or personality functioning is shaped by the first six years of life. Now, there's likely quite some truth in that. These days we talk about our experience of attachment in our families. We talk about early life experience. We talk about modelling, say, parental personality traits that be family values and culture that be relevant. But So no doubt early childhood is important, but it also could be overdone. And what would come up at times in cognitive behavioural therapy, or just say with trauma reactions, if someone's had a severe car accident six months ago, then so much is going to relate to the accident itself and subsequent things. And yes, how the person responds to that accident and maybe their helplessness around it, other reactions that they have can certainly be influenced by their experiences in early years of life and how safe they felt growing up in a family environment, how much they feel they can trust other people or draw on their support or if you like, think that the world is a place that can provide for them rather than being a hostile kind of place. Early childhood is relevant, but at times it was overdone in terms of psychoanalysis. And people could go to great leaps of interpretation to try and get a sense of what was influencing someone's reactions now. Whereas if we asked them why they interpreted this situation that happened in their workplace yesterday in a particular way, it might be more on the surface what's influencing them. Oh, I think the person was having a go at me because they said it like this kind of thing. Well, how do you know the person was having a go at you? What's the evidence for that kind of thing? Have you checked it with them or others who were there at the time? There are different ways that we can more pragmatically, if you like, maybe more efficiently even check out some of our perspectives, our viewpoints. So this is not to say that there are never more complicated, deeper interpretations of things. And I think that it's not as though we're always conscious of what our thoughts might be. And Beck would say that as well. Like a lot of the thoughts are automatic, so somewhat under the surface. It might take a little bit of digging. But sometimes there would be a more pragmatic explanation for things or even identifying the kinds of negative thoughts we typically have. If we get used to identifying those and picking up on the fact that, oh, I tend to discount the positive things that happen. If something goes bad, I do tend to catastrophize about that. We'll talk about some of these thinking errors that people can make. And if we can start to pick up some of the patterns in our thinking of where we tend to get a little bit caught up, that might be a lot more efficient than trying to dig deep each time. Oh, what's the symbolism of this kind of thought I'm having? Well, there was a fascinating pickup, I think, from Beck as well. And one of the things that really interests me about Beck was just hearing the way that, you know, it seemed that he had to had a lot to do with depressed patients, for example. And he was talking to these people in this state and realized that they were engaging in, as you said, like these patterns of negative self-talk. And so it was almost like in recognizing these patterns that came through, he was able to kind of go, hold on, is it, you know, is it, for example, chicken or egg here in terms of, yeah, there may be something that happened in your childhood that developed a pattern in a certain way of thinking. But at the same time, if, you know, many years down the track, you can find a way to disrupt that negative pattern of thinking, then you can still feel better. And it seems to me that that's, that's was in many ways the real, I suppose, the important shift that Beck picked up on, that there was a connection between those thoughts. It wasn't as if they just came after maybe a bad experience in childhood and then you were, you 
know, destined to forever go through them, there was some way that you could almost reverse engineer things to make them a little bit more positive and everything else would kind of flow afterwards. Yes, and I suppose in a way what Beck was looking at that way was also habits, habits of thinking, because how cognitive therapy developed is it followed on from behaviour therapy. So there was Freud and psychoanalysis, and partly as a counter to Freud's work on psychoanalysis, then there was a lot of research done in behaviourism, where people looked at habits. They looked at things like positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement. They looked at things like operant conditioning, like how did someone develop a phobia? For example, an infant might be exposed to a rat in a certain situation. They did experiments with this and suddenly there's a loud noise, a big clap, like Albert and the white rat. And each time exposed to the rat, there's this loud clap. And what you find is later on, when Albert's exposed just to the rat itself, showing this distress, which is associated with the disruptive kind of sound that happened at the time as well. So there's this notion that phobias or certain reactions can be learnt through experiences, through, say, negative consequences that have become paired with them, but also looking at habits, how they develop with operant conditioning. So this idea of recognising our negative thinking patterns and taking distance from our thoughts to disrupt those patterns is such a central idea to both Stoic philosophy and modern psychology. So it is something that, of course, we'll unpack over the next few episodes, but we really wanted to, I suppose, put that in there as way of introduction for what we will be talking about because it really is one of the central ideas of Stoic philosophy. This next clip that we'll be getting onto talks about why it's important to take some distance from our negative thoughts and our negative thinking patterns and and to not just let ourselves, for example, ruminate over a situation in a way that goes unchallenged because if we don't get on top of our negative thinking patterns, then they can cloud our judgment in all sorts of ways as, as will be discussed in this clip coming up. But I suppose in some ways, in almost a simplistic way of putting it, I think, what depression is and even what anxiety is is almost like when these negative thinking patterns come to impact our whole perception of things and and basically cloud the way that we see everything so that will be discussed a little bit more in this clip coming up and i suppose it'd even just be worth i suppose unpicking a little bit more about that idea of negative thoughts because it is such a central part of cbt and i think you know Negative thoughts, it's, you know, it's a, it's a great term, but it can be a little bit ambiguous in some ways because, you know, it may manifest or thoughts may manifest negatively different for absolutely everyone. But he had a, I suppose, number of ways that he would describe those negative thoughts that are even a little bit more specific. And we might even go over a couple of them, Dad, because I think it is worth getting into. And one of those, uh, he had an experiment Uh, which I think shows well, I suppose, the nature of these negative thoughts. And the experiment uh, looked at something called binocular rivalry, I think is what it was called. It's a a fancy term, but basically what they would do is they would set people up with with some sort of apparatus to look through where they were looking at two pictures. So look, look at one picture in one eye and one picture in the other eye. And one of these pictures was positive. I think it was a group of people smiling, sitting around a table, and on the table was a vase of flowers. 
And then on the other picture, it was like a negative picture. So it was a similar group of people sitting around a similar table. And instead of smiling, they weren't smiling at all, looking very you know, sad and down. And in the middle of the table was a coffin instead of a, a bunch of flowers. And what Beck found doing these experiments is that people who were depressed would essentially isolate the negative picture and just focus on the negative picture. And once they'd recovered, they would isolate the positive picture and focus on the positive picture. And so I think he called this particular, you know, negative thought, I think this was called a, a mental filter. And so what he found was that people who are depressed, they literally have a perception of the world that is clouded towards seeing the negative versus the positive. When presented with two options side by side with each other, one's negative, one's positive, they would focus on the one that's negative until they recovered. The exact same people were shown the two pictures again later on once they'd recovered and then they were able to focus on the positive one again. And so what this showed was that these people had such an entrenched perspective towards the negative that came with their depression. And I suppose what Beck was almost trying to say is almost kind of going, hey, it's, I think this is a little bit more chicken and egg than maybe Freud's making it out to be in terms of, you know, this isn't just a, you know, a symptom of, of things that have happened many, many years ago. There are situations where the same person will focus on different photos out of, you know, different eyes based on whether they're feeling positive or negative. But to me, it just shows, I suppose, the depth to which, you know, something like depression and, and you know, what we call negative thoughts, these kind of negative thoughts uh, that the Beck termed, it just shows the depth to which they can, I suppose, overcome us and can almost literally cloud or our entire perceptions. Yes, and if we think that in general, it might not be quite this precise, but looking to have about three positive thoughts to one negative thought to look at more of a balance. But certainly we need more positive thoughts to negative thoughts to have some kind of balance in our mood. Well, if people have, say, one positive thought to one negative thought, they're likely to be feeling depressed. In that situation, the person might be thinking, yes, but there's only one good thing that happens to one bad thing. That's the actual ratio I experience. Well, wait a minute. It might not be that's the ratio of good or bad things that happen. Like you said, with that binocular kind of experiment, it might be partly our interpretation or our filter, whether we're selectively attending to the positive or the negative. And certainly that's one of the key things that comes across with seeing clients who are struggling with depression, very much tending to notice and pick up on the negative things about themselves, things that happen in the future, and tending to gloss over the positive things about themselves and things that happen. So this is one of the main things that can make a difference when people recognize that there might be that mental filter happening and looking to counter it as well as by identifying these other kind of examples of disruptive thinking or thinking errors that we'll talk about. So the final clip that we have for you today in terms of our introduction to Stoic philosophy is from episode 54 of the podcast, The Intolerance of Irrational Ideas. And in this clip, we'll be talking about Albert Ellis, who is one of the, the main founders of CBT, along with Aaron Beck, who we spoke a little bit about earlier. But Albert Ellis developed RET. So that was one of the other main arms that, that went on to become CBT. But 
even just listening back to it now, having discussed a bit of stuff about Stoic philosophy with dad, it is such a good example of how Stoic philosophy relates to modern psychology in, in many ways. Like this idea that we'll be talking about in just a moment is basically the distillation of one of the, the really main central points in Stoic philosophy. And, and the way that it's discussed in this episode is really in quite modern psychological terms. So if you can keep maybe this idea in mind over the next couple of episodes, it will really set you up well for when we do get into some of the, the deeper, meatier stuff in Stoic philosophy because this idea that is coming up now is just one of the most central points to it and one of the things that if we can really understand, well, then that helps us to, I suppose, not be ruled by some of our negative thoughts. We have a lot more control over our negative thoughts. If we understand this process that goes on, then we can almost manipulate that process in our favour. One of the things I was really interested in one of those videos that I saw, Dad, and I reckon you'd be able to explain this a little bit better than myself, but basically he talked about his innovative idea in many ways. It was an idea that I suppose he not necessarily came up with, but I suppose came back to, related to Stoic philosophy, and that was how I suppose people are an ABC model as opposed to an AC model. I wonder if you could just give us a bit of a brief explanation about what the ABC versus the AC model is. Okay, well, an ABC model is a core of cognitive therapy and cognitive behavioural therapy. So Beck had very similar views on this. And the general idea is often when people feel distressed, they think it's because something that happened. I've experienced this loss or I had a car accident or someone stole something from me or I failed an exam. Why do I feel depressed? Because I failed an exam. The A, the activating event, leads to C, the emotional consequences of failing the exam and maybe being despondent or withdrawing and maybe feeling less inclined to do further study. Oh, it's because I failed an exam. But what Ellis, as well as Beck, pointed out is there's a B in the middle of the A, B, C. And that is, it's not the activating event, it's not the event itself, the situation, that leads us to react a certain way. It's our beliefs about the situation. So it's what we believe about the fact that I failed this exam. Does that mean that I'm no good as a student? Does that mean I'm not cut out for this particular kind of course? Does that mean that I'm useless or I'm never going to get anywhere? Like we can imagine how the thoughts can become more exaggerated, so to speak. And so Ellis was very attuned to this. And so he looked, as Beck did, to encourage people to counter those thoughts, to identify these kinds of beliefs that could be undermining to our well-being, and to dispute them to dispute the idea that I must pass every exam to prove I'm a competent person or that I can't stand the fact that I've failed or I'm never going to get anywhere. To be able to dispute those kind of thoughts and to recognise this might be unfortunate, it might be frustrating, it might be disappointing. We would have greatly preferred to have passed that exam. There might be some negative consequences from it, but it's not the end of the world. That's not a direct measure of my worth as a person. Yeah, the general idea of disputing those kinds of negative thoughts, and then it would lead to a different kind of effect. So rather than someone being perhaps depressed, they're more likely to be disappointed or frustrated. Rather than someone being really angry with someone else because, oh, they should have done this or, or they should have treated me so differently from how they did, 
when we might get very angry and distressed and upset about a situation, we might be more irritated or frustrated, but in a sense, our emotions won't get away from us quite as much. So very much Ellis, like Beck, was looking to help us take that little bit more control over our reactions and realise that we could do something about our thinking and watch out for black and white exaggerated thoughts, like the overgeneralised thoughts that we talked about last time, the absolute black and white thinking kind of thoughts. So as I said, these are uh, ideas that we'll unpack a little bit more over the next few episodes, but this process of how we interpret things, this ABC idea is a real core idea of Stoic philosophy. Like if we have the event and we recognise that the emotional consequences are related to our belief about the event and not just the event itself, well, that allows us to reframe even the worst events in a way that doesn't mean that we just fall into negative thinking patterns about that event. Like we can never change an event in itself but we can certainly change our beliefs around that event and or we can even reframe maybe the impact of that event and whether or not you know it was basically all negative or maybe there might be some slight silver linings in there and this is a really core idea of stoic philosophy so we'll unpack this of course a little bit more over the next few episodes but we just wanted to head back to some of the previous episodes where stoic philosophy has come up in different ways because Oh, as I say, it is quite a deep and profound topic. It's a, a few hundred years of Greek philosophy that in many ways has been updated in a modern context, but it's still, I suppose, yeah, quite profound in terms of some of the central ideas of Stoic philosophy. So we wanted to give you those few little snippets today and hopefully we can keep uh, those few ideas in mind of recognising negative thinking patterns, taking some distance and, and challenging our thoughts so that these thinking patterns don't just completely cloud our judgment and then recognizing that we have a little bit of control over that they're some of the main ideas of stoic philosophy and we'll be getting into or well, i suppose how they relate to modern psychology even more over the next couple of episodes so i hope you've enjoyed this first just little special episode for 2024 we're very much looking forward to getting back with you over the next couple of weeks we will be releasing the episode that we've recorded already uh in in two weeks from today and then uh, following on from that, Dad will be back from his uh, adventures and journey and he might even share a little bit about that with you and we'll, uh, we'll get back into the Stoic philosophy because, yeah, I think uh, I might even have a chance to maybe even set up a bit of an episode myself over the next few weeks and, and some of this Stoic philosophy stuff and how it relates to, I suppose, the history of philosophy and, and how these ideas, I suppose, are, are so relevant in a modern context even though they came from so long ago is just something that I'm absolutely fascinated with so can't wait to bring it all to you over the next few episodes thanks very much